0: Trigger warning. This episode will contain mentions of rape and sexual assault. This may be triggering for some listeners with similar experiences, so please consider before listening to the rest of this episode. Hey everyone, I'm your host Vivian and today our guest will be Rima Zaman. Rima Zaman is the author of an award-winning memoir called I Am Yours: A Shared Memoir. The book follows her life from her birth, then her childhood in Bangladesh and Thailand, then moving to the United States at the age of 18. After graduating from college, Rima moved to New York and became an actress. There, she went through some of the toughest times in her life getting raped, sexually assaulted, and truly experiencing the toxic patriarchy in our world. It was there where she met her now ex husband, who manipulated and gaslit her and eventually prompted her to write this memoir. Today, on this podcast, Rima will talk a little more about the experiences she went through and also about how people, and especially young girls in our society, are encouraged to silence themselves and conform to the desires of everyone else. Continue listening to learn how you can keep or regain your voice and how important it is to share your stories. So welcome, Rima. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. I'm such a big fan of your book and I actually, I actually listened to the audio version of it and your voice was really soothing. Thank you so much. And I can't believe I'm actually sitting here with you, cause you're literally the one and only Rima Zaman. Like you're the only one. I read on your website. And before we start, I just wanted to congratulate you on the upcoming film adaptation of "I Am Yours." Hopefully, hopefully and I'm gonna. Oh really? What's going on with the? The corona. Who knows? Oh right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully it happens. Um, I'm going to be. Thank
1: so you for doing this. I'm so proud of you and your organization. Thank you so much. Phenomenal and very important work.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so glad you agreed to do this because you're like.
1: It's my honor. It's my, yeah.
0: It's my honor to have you on the podcast. It's unbelievable. It's just as much as a pleasure for me, I promise. Thank you so much. So I finished a book and I was you know I, I you're you've definitely grown so much as a person ever since um from your from the person that you were in the book you're a lot more vocal now and you know like you know what you're worth mm-hmm. so if your younger self could see you right now what do you think what do you think she would think about you um, gosh uh, well
1: I think she would just be really happy and content that the bet she made on herself worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you read about, you've read, I mean, you you know the whole book. Oh, by the way, everyone, this is Fia. And um, <laughs> I just rescued her. It's, today is Friday and tomorrow will be our one week anniversary.
0: Wow. And, um,
1: so that's why I have a crate and she has blankets everywhere. Usually we're, we're more tidy than this. But anyway, this is Fia, um, And Fia means flame in Latin. She's my little bonfire. Yeah, and you're going to see she's going to fall asleep in like five seconds. Look at that.
0: I can see her eyes drooping already.
1: (laughs) There you go. Um, But thank you. Yeah, um, you know, when I was in that marriage in my mid-20s, one of the ways I, you know, on my really dark days when um, things were really bad between us, and he was very psychologically manipulative and abusive. And um, for, for people who are not familiar with the book, you know, he used to do things like, he used to, um, he used to constantly threaten me with different things. Uh, and he would use threats as a way to try to control my behavior. Like he would say, if you do this, I'm going, if you do A, I'm going to do B. I'm going to punish you by doing B. And so the things he would bring up would be, so he would, um, instead of going out on, and cheating on me, he would threaten, to cheat on me if I were to make him angry, which, I mean, cheating is already a really awful thing for one human to do to another, Mm -hmm. but usually the person has a bit of remorse and guilt, and so they try to keep it a secret, Mm -hmm. but he would just dangle it in front of me as though like, it will be your fault because of your misbehavior, because of your failure to be a perfect girl. Mm-hmm. And um, another thing he would do is we applied for my green card at, through marriage and I had already, you know, I come to the United States as a student, as a college student. So I had my student visa and then the student visa turned into an artist visa that was sponsored by my acting agents. But when we got married, it was his idea. Actually, he said, you know, I would I want to be the reason why you're in this country. And initially, I thought, oh, that sounds so romantic. But anybody who is familiar with the psychology of an abuser, they try to make you completely dependent on them. Mm -hmm. And so when I agreed to this romantic notion, I ended up being completely legally bound and dependent on him. And my security in this country and my ability to work and live in the United States suddenly became dependent on him. So on days when he thought that I was being a bad wife, he would say, oh, you know what? Well, um, it's a good thing we don't actually love each other. You're just my wife for greensies, not for realsies. Oh my God. Right, and so, you know, so I knew that, and, and it, as is the case with so many abusive marriages, it becomes almost impossible for a woman to leave and that's part of why we stay for as long as we do, not out of you know, stupidity. The, the stigma is that we're not smart enough to know what's going on or that we're too scared and we can't leave. Well, the thing is we do know what's going on, but the fact of the matter is so many women become completely financially trapped or legally trapped by their abuser. And so that was my, my case for sure. And I had to just very strategically figure out how to get him to let me go instead of me initiating a divorce. Because I knew if I initiated a divorce, his ego would throw a tantrum and he would try to make my my life a living hell. And for all I knew, he would try to get me deported. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these were like the really mind-bogglingly tough situations And the way that I would instill strength in myself and focus about, okay, I need to come up with a clear plan and I can do this, is that I would do this practice of pitching my vision forward of the woman I could become in five or 10 years, Mm -hmm. if I were to figure out how to leave him. Mm -hmm. And I would envision, you know, a woman who was happy and living in her own space and hopefully using her story to help others ignite the fire and the strength inside of them.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so that's my long-winded answer to your question, which is it worked out, you know? Um, and I think it's a really good practice for anybody who finds themselves in any situation where you're just like, how will, I, how will things ever get better? And the thing is, it will focus on the person you can become if you were to ignite the courage you need in this moment to put one foot in front of the other.
0: Mm -hmm. And I like how in the book, you whenever someone took advantage of you or something really bad happened, you were like, this is not my life. This is not my life. And during those times where you kind of envisioning this life, this ideal life for you, and do you think you're living it right now?
1: Thank you. I not perhaps not in the details. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know, you know, what it was going to look like. But I knew that I wanted a life where I wasn't looking over my shoulder all the time, being worried that I was failing somebody for not being perfect in the way that in the narrative of perfection they had for me. Mm -hmm. And that's when I when I kept on saying like, this is not my life. I was also saying that you know i was saying like this kind of trauma and danger and pain is not my life but also i reject the narrative that patriarchy puts on women that you know like this story is not the story i was born to live mm-hmm. and so it's it's two things it's like i would re- this is not my narrative i refuse to be part of patriarchy's narrative that they that they have instilled upon me and so i think that's like my biggest My biggest hope and desire for any reader, especially female-identified readers, is to understand that the narratives assigned to us by misogyny or, you know, people of color readers or LGBTQIA readers, like the narratives that society place on us, it's not the life you were born to lead. You get to decide your narrative. You get to be the author of your life.
0: So I think your story is a lot about finding your own voice, right? But and at the beginning of the story, when you were young and you were in Bangladesh, you were very vocal, like you were yelling at your dad for separating you and your um, brother. But as you got older, you got a little you started being more and more compliant, I feel like. So how do you think you lost that voice in the first place?
1: Um, I think that comes with puberty for a lot of girls
0: mm-hmm.
1: where um, it's or like puberty you like kind of sparks the hormones and the rage in us. And we start to see like all of the wrong things in society, the misogyny, and we start pointing it out and being like, that's not okay, that's not cool, that's not cool. And I know so many girlfriends who went through that angry teenager phase. But then society does such a great job at trying to snuff out that flame, you know? Mm -hmm. And telling us, oh, um, a perfect girl doesn't doesn't behave this way. You're not going to be you're not going to be loved. You're not going to be accepted. You're not going to be popular if you keep on making trouble. And as a young person, especially in middle school or high school, mm-hmm. so much of the human being's desire is just to be accepted and to feel like you belong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that's where you know my my voice started to dim down. The more I became socialized. Like, we're, we're all born innocent mm-hmm. and with our voice intact. You know, children don't have any filter because no one has told them that they have misbehaved yet. Mm-hmm. It's only after a child has said something audacious or outrageous and pointed out a truth. And then when, when, a, par- when a parent says, oh, oh, you shouldn't talk about those things that's when the child knows to swallow their voice, but otherwise they're going to use their voice freely. And so I believe it's not, you know, like how the term is find your voice. The thing is, it's more about reclaiming our voice. We were all born with voices to begin with. It's just that somewhere along the way of our narrative, society, whether it was you know, a teacher or a parent or someone you had a crush on or an employer trauma in any any shape or form somewhere along the way that trauma silenced the voice and so our path to recovery and healing is about activating and nurturing and reclaiming that voice and to do it with love because love is the opposite of the punishment that we faced.
0: How do you think you were able to reclaim this
1: voice? It was when I started writing in my own voice. Because remember, like my first career was to be an, I was an actress. Mm-hmm. So I was literally, I went to college to train how to recite scripts written by other people, mainly white men, straight white men. Like, <laughs> which is like, it's kind of the the professional version of what so many girls, like, that's kind of what we're raised to do is, obediently recite the scripts written for us by other people, mainly straight white men. And so when I sat down to write my own work and initially I wasn't doing it with any professional intention. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm gonna get it published. It was just to recover my, like to to carve out a little space of safety for my own self, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is why so many people turn to journaling we don't think oh we're going to become a published author we start to journal whether it's at seven seven years old or 17 years old or 27 years old we want to create a a little nook of safety and so by focusing more and more time and effort in that safe space I created I started to grow in confidence Mm -hmm. and I started to reclaim the voice that had been away from me
0: so with, was this career change kind of a very spontaneous thing because you just started writing and you weren't expecting anything to come out of it?
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, I started because I'd always kept a journal and I used to write little poems and things like as a kid and, through, you know, when I was in elementary school, middle school and high school, but I never thought I was smart enough to be published. I didn't even try.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and again, it's because I swallowed the narrative that patriarchy tells us that, like, I I knew writers in my life, my but they were all men. My grandfather, he was a published writer, and I I adored him, and he was always so loving and encouraging of me. I just didn't think I had anything important to say. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I went to co- I went to college, and I obediently trained to be a reciting parrot. <laughs> and then I started going on auditions, and they kept on sending me to one. Uh, one stereotype after another, you know, it's like most of the auditions, most of the roles available for, especially in my generation, I'm 37 now. And so I was in my young twenties auditioning in New York, like literally almost 15 years ago was when I entered the workforce. So you can tell like it was way before Me Too, way before feminism became popular popularized on Instagram. We didn't even have Instagram. <laughs> like you know i i'm much older than you guys and thankfully you all have this kind of this you know the this knowledge and this awareness where you're having these conversations already but for me they're, my generation we we had to create that conversation we we it wasn't around us really and so and certainly like hollywood understanding that they needed to be better about doing Non anti racist work and anti misogynistic work that was not even a thing yet, Mm -hmm. and so the only roles available back then were you know, like, um, the exotic mistress because I'm a woman of color, or like the bitchy, uh, the bitchy sidekick Mm -hmm. because I'm a woman of color, or or the ditzy girlfriend,
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: Mm -hmm. I just remember. I just remember being so unsatisfied by that when I started writing uh, screenplays, just for my own joy. Mm -hmm. And the first one I ever wrote was about, um, I wanted it to, I wanted the lead to be Angelina Jolie. (laughs) And uh, and it was about a a group of women who had been um, incarcerated and in in a Thai prison, a group of foreigner women and how they all like, some of them were there um, like they they were, they were not guilty. Some of their were guilty. Anyway, it was like a whole thing, but I didn't know how to do like the beginning, middle and end. Mm -hmm. I just had a good idea, but I was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just knew that I enjoyed doing it for my own pleasure. And now I can look back and I realize it's because it was again, the one safe space where my imagination and my voice was allowed to speak and was when I met the man who would become my my first husband and who's now my ex-husband. Not that I have a second husband. <laughs> um, I always, like, I don't know how to talk about that yet. Well, my first husband, but I don't have, anyway, anyway. So, um, so when I was 25, that's when we met and we got married within a few months because he said, you know, let's get hitched now. We won't do a ceremony. We'll do it for your green card. We have to apply before you know your visa uh, expires. So that's why we got married within like six or seven months. And then he, in the beginning of when we were dating, he had shown a lot of red flags mm-hmm. of being very possessive and control. Well, I possessive, I didn't realize it was control yet. And he used to say, oh, it's because I love you so much. It's because I love you so much, I want to know your entire daily schedule. because I love you so much that I need to know how you're using your money. It's because I love you so much that I need to know exactly who you're going to be going out to dinner with. And, you know, again, it's like, I'm of a very different generation. I'm an elder millennial. And we didn't even know about intimate partner abuse. We didn't know that this was gaslighting. We didn't know that this kind of possessive behavior is actually inappropriate and manipulative and abusive behavior. I had been raised on movies that told me, oh, if a man wants to own all of you, that's really sexy.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's I know. A little, oh, yeah. I hate when they say like, when boys are mean, they like you, that just kind of propels this whole thing. Yes. It's,
1: you know what it is. It's the it's the normalization of male violence and you can't have the normalization and the And an immediate and natural side effect of the the normalization of male violence is the suppression of female suffering. So it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Male violence, the normalization of male violence inevitably leads to the minimization and the silencing of female suffering. We're told, oh yeah, he, he pulled your ponytail on the playground, I know you're crying, but it's actually because he has a crush on you. It's so messed up, and so- of course, like it was my new sexy boyfriend trying to be all possessive, and I was like, "Oh well, it's a little suffocating, but it just means he loves me so much." Mm-hmm. And then he like, you know, he had his uh, he propositioned the whole green card thing. We got we got married. He bought a half burnt barn in upstate New York, and suddenly I was living off the grid, so remote from civilization, we didn't even have a cell reception. I was isolated from all of my friends in New York City. I was isolated from all of my family members. Um, We barely had like Wi-Fi. And one of the things that abusers do is they meticulously and step-by-step isolate the victim more and more. So the the victim becomes completely dependent on the abuser. Mm -hmm. Again, these are things I did not know. Mm -hmm. But more and more controlling and possessive and then I started seeing like this was actually outright insanity. He was starting to do really crazy things, and he started, you know, threatening about sister wives and calling me wife for green seas. And I, would, and he would say these things on a Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I'd be like, "Well, now you love me, but you you said all this stuff about wanting to have sex with sister wives yesterday." Mm-hmm. And then he would say, "No, I never said that," which is classic gaslighting, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's when I started writing. I started to keep documentation of everything he was saying. First, initially to like hold it up to him as proof. Mm -hmm. And then the more scary he became, I continued to write down everything that happened every day in case I needed evidence and documentation in court were he to become physically violent and were something truly dangerous to occur. But the more I wrote the more confident I became because I saw connections starting to crystallize on the page. Mm. And I started analyzing his childhood and my unhealed trauma from my childhood in early twenties. I started writing for the first time about the things that had happened to me when I was 11 years old and a cousin had tried to molest me and the entire story was silenced. I started connecting how that could then Connect to why I was so um, enthusiastic about normalizing my husband's behavior, you know? Mm-hmm. Because somebody else, when I was a child and I had wanted help and protection, my family didn't give me the help and protection. And so I became a woman who later on started to devalue herself protection she deserved and found myself in an abusive marriage. You know, I started writing about when I was in high school and my high school IB psychology teacher started stalking me and I reported him to my principal and the principal did not do anything. And I saw how look, the normalization of the minimization of my suffering ended up making me a woman capable of normalizing male violence. Mhm. I started writing how when I was 23 years old and I was raped and I decided not to do anything about it, not because I was ashamed, but because by that time I had, already be- be- I had already been given so much evidence by the world around me that the world did not care. And so, of course, I walked very calmly and seamlessly
0: into an abusive marriage. That chapter for me was really hard to read because, you know, it's about rape. Do you think that, was that the hardest chapter for you to write?
1: It was actually not that hard. The hardest chapters to write were, you know, when um, my ex-husband would say that he was going to do X, Y, Z to me um, because I loved him, you know. Uh, the the hardest, actually the hardest chapters to write, the hardest sections to write were my childhood ones, especially any scene where it was both my brother and my Scene where I wipe away my brothers because we've both been scared because we heard um, our parents fighting. That was actually the hardest one to write um, because I love my brother so much. And I, you know, writing that chapter made me go immediately back in time and just cry for that little boy who was afraid.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and for that little girl who had to grow up far too early in order to protect her little brother and herself and then our little sister who came afterwards yeah those were the hardest parts to write it's yeah it's interesting the rape was actually more like a it was a clinical process to write about it you know it was almost like I was diagnosing this happened and then this happened and then this happened and I was able to Distance myself and um, you know, kind of disassociate from the trauma and just write about it as an exercise. Yeah, but it's it's the stuff that happens to us when we're children that's usually the hardest to write about.
0: Yeah. So you talked a lot about the the relationship between your mom and your dad, and obviously it wasn't it wasn't the best one. Um, Do you think you kind of took that relationship and defined? like the ideal one in your head and then reflect that onto your marriage?
1: Absolutely. You nailed it. Um, If you're so just to paraphrase for people who haven't read the book yet, um, you know, both of my parents, my mom and my papa, they, you know, they're from Bangladesh. They were raised in very, in a very patriarchal culture both of them had gone through so much trauma in their childhood because they were children during the Bangladeshi War for independence, you know. We didn't, uh, Bangladesh didn't gain our independence from Pakistan until 1971. So my parents were kids during that time. And then my father lost his father when he was a really young kid, like when he was 11 years old. And so, um, you know, and I, so I, I know that they both had, and also they were raised in a generation and more specifically a culture that doesn't teach you how to have healthy relationships, especially healthy heteros heterodynamic relationships, you know, it's heteronormality is usually so twisted and toxic. And so that's what um, they came into their marriage with and they had an arranged marriage and then they did the best that they could, but the, the best that they could meant that, you know, um, I'm the oldest, and I'm, you know, a girl, and what I saw modeled was my mom being very subservient and very scared of my father, and my father being definitely the leader of the household, um, and that we had to earn his love by behaving uh, with by by achieving a certain level of almost punishing perfection. And I think this is also very, um, unfortunately, it's like a culturally Asian thing too, mm-hmm. where our parents want so much for us and they want us only to succeed, but they think that in that the way to achieve that success is through a level of punishing discipline and perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And this can really toxify because a child can unwittingly and unconsciously and you know, not, it may not even be the, the parents um, choice or for them to consciously do it. But what can happen is that a child grows up thinking that love is not unconditional. Love is based on conditions and the conditions dictate that I have to perform at a certain level of punishing success and perfection in order to gain approval, acceptance, and love. From the, the two people whom I would die for. But um, yeah, so I think that's what can unfortunately happen in a lot of Asian families, um, a lot of immigrant families too, where we have had to fight so hard for our place in life and our parents too have had to fight so hard to create the life for us that we inadvertently learn to conflate love with perfectionism love with success. And then that can also then toxify into conflating love with fear. That we we kind of, unfortunately learn that the very same person whom you love the most in life can be the person that you fear the most too, or whose opinion you fear the most too, you crave their opinion and you fear their, their opinion the most. So that's, the conditioning I brought into all of my romantic relationships and even my friendships for a long time. You know, I, I used to have a lot of girlfriends who were always like very domineering and constantly telling me off being like, Oh yeah, you didn't do that correctly. Or I was really unhappy. And I'd be like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, um, and I was the same way with the guys I drew towards me. They were um, like, I remember in my twenties, I was like, all guys can't be assholes. Like that's objectively impossible. Why do I keep on dating men who treat me like dirt? And I was like, well, because that's the definition of love I have in my head that I need to unpack and reject once and for all. And to fill that space with a true definition of what love is, mm-hmm. of what authentic love is. Authentic love doesn't make us dance and perform and earn
0: affection so i was listening to the book and every time you said sorry i was like don't say sorry you're literally apologizing for like just existing and taking up space
1: right exactly um and i was so glad like it, it was like it had become my mantra i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry and then finally once i was able once he so I, you know i won't give away the the ending but Basically, when we separated, then my mantra was like, "Thank you, thank you, thank you." I'm just, I'm free, free, free. And um, and hopefully, if the if the film works out <laughs> and, and COVID doesn't like destroy the film industry, mm-hmm. um, that's one of the final uh, the final scenes is where this other younger woman is apologizing to me, and I tell her. Um, women spend far too much time apologizing for things we're not responsible for. Nothing to be sorry about.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about your marriage, your past marriage. So you were an actress, and I don't know if this holds true for all careers, but I know it could sometimes be hard to separate your personal life and your work life. So during your marriage, were you conscious that you were losing part of yourself and pretending to be this person that he wanted you to be or were you unaware that you were just pretending because you're so used to it
1: you are brilliant that (laughs) is a brilliant um examination and analysis of it that's exactly what happened it's Mm -hmm. like you know i was so well trained in losing myself in in someone else's desired role Mm -hmm. or losing my playing the role somebody else wanted me to play that I started doing exactly that with men in general, but especially the man who was my husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, and that's why like, I believe the turning point was when I started writing in my own voice and I could just listen to the truth inside my head versus all these other voices, like whether it was the voice of my father or the voice of my husband, or the voice of casting directors and producers and and directors telling me, oh no, you didn't do that correctly. Do it again, you, can, you have to be better, you know? Um, yeah, that's why I'm such a huge fan and advocate for people to write their own narratives. And that's why I love, I love your nonprofit and what you guys are doing because I really believe that so many of the world's traumas and the source, the the root of our pain can be healed by every single person just giving their own, giving themselves that own space and safety, their own safe space to speak as their own self. And then that way we like gain true self-esteem. And if a person has true self-esteem, they're not going to inflict violence upon themselves or somebody else.
0: Yeah. your book is you know very vulnerable you talk about every single detail what what allowed you to be so brave and published this for the whole world to read about your life
1: you're so kind to say that sweet um, I never thought it was brave like it just for me it felt like such freedom to finally be able to talk about these things without incurring punishment Um, and that was a choice I just had to make for myself because these were stories I've been carrying inside my body for 30 years. And they had, these stories had been ritually silenced by so many people around me, mainly my family members. And when I announced to my family that I was going to write a memoir, they weren't very happy. Mm. And they were like, you're gonna tell all of our secrets and you're gonna blow up the world and it's gonna be an apocalypse for our family. And I said, no, because First of all, I'm not going to tell these stories as a form of revenge, or through a voice that is somehow like, violent towards the characters in the book. I'm going to write about everyone and their choices with the utmost love and compassion and understanding. Even, you know, the sections when you see like, when I was writing about my ex-husband, I have so much compassion for him. I understand that he was modeled toxic masculinity. That's why he was behaving this way. Like all all human beings were born as children, were born innocent, and then we become the pain that is modeled to us. You know? Mm -hmm. And it's with that mindset that I wrote about these stories and I wrote about these characters. And so I knew what my intention was going to be. So I knew that the that the impact would be love, awareness, and hopefully tools for healing for the reader. But my family was, of course, like all you know. I tried to explain it to them, but it's hard to explain a creative project's final um, incarnation, like that the artist may have it in their head, but it's really hard to explain it to the audience. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "I don't understand what you mean," and I'm like, "Okay, you know what?" I can't beg for your approval or your, or your blessing. That's impossible. You don't, I don't need your support. I just believe that this is going to end up being a book that has a very loving and healing and empowering voice and that it's going to do more good in this, in this world than bad. So I'm going to stick to it. And then lo and behold, of course, like all of them, they've come around and my, my siblings, especially are so proud of the book and my work. And they're like, Oh Yeah. It did work out. So that's really nice. Um, But at the time being, I wasn't being a courageous person, wasn't at all um, part of my drive or my consciousness. I was
0: just trying to give myself freedom. Mm -hmm. So, was writing this book kind of a a way to recover or heal from these traumas?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because I think any kind of trauma, especially. Um, well, any, honestly, any kind of trauma, whether it's racial trauma or sexual trauma or intergenerational trauma, the trauma sits in your body in as a threefold wound. One, voicelessness. It feels like the abusive society or the abusive person rips your voice away from you. And they start telling you what your narrative needs to be. So that's the first thing, voicelessness. The second is a deep pervasive loneliness where you think you're the only one going through this in the world. And, and then number three is insignificance. Not only has your voice been ripped from your throat and not only are you so lonely in this, but then it you start to get signs that nobody cares. Mm. And so the path to true healing is about addressing each part of that wound with enormous, meticulous love and care and patience. So the first part is reclaiming your voice, nurturing that baby flame back into a bonfire, you know? Number two, in order to heal that loneliness, the easiest thing is to reach out and find other people who have gone through similar experiences and start saying, me too, me too. And you realize, oh, I, first of all, I'm not crazy for thinking that I'm sad or angry at the world. And we are valid in our emotions and it wasn't okay what happened to us. That is the enormous gift of finding community and other survivors of similar traumas. Mm-hmm. That me too, me too, me too. And saying me too immediately and finding your community already and very gently but thoroughly starts to heal the loneliness inside of us. And then number three, the way to heal insignificance is through service. Use your story and turn it into a story of empowerment versus victimhood. And then use that story, use that trauma, turn that pain into power and use it to serve other people. The best way to feel powerful and important in this world is to know that you have done something to help someone else raise their self-esteem raise their confidence and so it immediately helps heal
0: that insignificance so since the book has been published has anyone come out to, talk, to and tell you how much the book has helped them yeah thank you that's the best part, part of uh, publishing
1: a book is l- hearing from readers Like my favorite part every day is like getting an email or an Instagram DM or, you know, Facebook messenger, like anything of those, they make my life Mm -hmm. because it, you know, how like your first question was, um, did you, you know, you've grown so much since the, the girl we left off in the book, Um, did you think you could become this person? Um, And I said like, well, it's just really reassuring to know that I'm here. You know, that was the goal of like, just get to a place where you can be proud of yourself and confident in life. And the same thing with the goal of the book. I didn't have a goal of it being like a bestseller or to become Insta famous. Like I'm not, I I have a small following and I'm very, I'm very, very blessed with the community I have because that's actually the only goal I ever had. I just wanted to write something that would help someone else gain more self-esteem and confidence and self-love in
0: this world. And I love how throughout the book, you were you were thinking about how you wanted someone to write this book about you. You were, you were looking so hard for a book that was just like yours. And now you're the person who's helping all these other girls going through whatever happened to you.
1: Well, that's the metaphor, that the thing that's going to save us is outside of ourselves, you know? Oh. Oh. but
0: you're your own savior you're 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 the story you're the voice you've been waiting for um so our time is almost up here and I just have one question because I looked at the title and I was thinking about this mm-hmm. but your um your book is called I'm yours a shared memory and I just want to ask you why you decided to call it a shared memory me- oh a memoir I said memory that's not right oh, a
1: shared memory because that, that's exactly why like it It's such an unusual book because of the almost um, like radical intimacy of the of the voice you know where i break the fourth wall and i speak directly to the reader you and i we're going to go through this together and by revisiting these painful memories we're going to revisit it in a way that is specifically about empowerment versus re-victimization and your your story may not be identical to mine but there's going to be overlaps so we're going to heal and rise in strength together and so it was a shared journey and my publisher came up with that subtitle of a shared memoir
0: and whenever you wrote about like I can see you in your book I felt like I was in the room with you and I was I was like seeing your struggles that was really cool (laughs)
1: That that was, um, that's why, like, you know, I talk to you as though you are my imaginary best friend growing Mm -hmm. up, because I think that's like, when kids, um, conjure an imaginary best friend, it's, they're just talking to the, the voice in their own head, they're talking to their inner voice. And that in many ways is what the reader is, you know, we all writers start writing, like nobody who's like, I feel like, especially people who write nonfiction. You're not, you're not the popular kid in, in school. Like we're all lonely because we're looking for someone to talk to. And so I thought, why not just lean into that? What it is, you know, I started writing this book because I was desperate for someone to talk to, somebody who would give me the respect I knew I deserved. And, in, and by, by invoking that voice, I wanted to give you the love, And you, the attention and you, the respect that you deserve and the encouragement you and every reader deserves to become their most bold, brave voice.
0: I love the book so much. I feel like there's so much love in the book and the ending is the ending is really good because it's it's satisfying, but it's like it's kind of a hanger because you're like, what's going to happen? But you also feel settled. Oh, good. Yeah, um, because something has been solved. Mm-hmm. But enough things have been
1: put into foundation where you're like, oh, what happens next?
0: Yeah, Um. I just have one more question. So what what are some plans you have in the future? I know you're writing another book. So
1: yeah, I actually just, um, I finished a new novel back in September. And it's it's a dystopian thriller. So um, yeah, because I actually, my favorite books growing up Um, I love dystopian novels. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I think a lot, like I've, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who are like, I think it's like anybody who kind of sees them as, sees themselves as like on the outskirts of society. And we, something to do with our, whatever happened in our childhood, we just became really good about like, finding the questions and the holes in society and being like, that's not okay. And that's not okay. And that's not okay. And that's exactly what dystopian novels are about, mm-hmm. about investigating the, the dangerous underbelly and the darkness in human culture. And so um, I, uh, yeah, I sat down and I wrote this novel cause I needed something, I needed companionship, you know? Cause I've been isolated um, with, you know, with the pandemic. <laughs> 2000 and um, and it was before I got Fia and uh, and I was just like I need to write something and this whole novel just came to me and it's called Paramita Paramita means perfection in Sanskrit and um, and it's the, the book is told in two narrative voices so two narratives go narrators go back and forth every chapter and one of the narrators her name is Gaia and she's 39 years old, and she's a genetic scientist. And um, she lives in 2020, and uh, there has been a pandemic. And she has been chosen by the president of the United States to find a life-saving vaccine. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, right. And she has two children, and it's an interracial marriage. Mm-hmm. And so they're going, and she has interracial kids. And she has mixed kids, and. So, but she's white and she's going through, you know, America in 2020 as a a woman who, as a white woman, but the mother of brown kids trying to be like, how do I save them? How do I protect them Um, on a medical level, but also a racial level, a societal level. And so that's her story. And then the other narrator, uh, her name is Era and she's the granddaughter of Gaia and she speaks from 80 years in the in the future in the year 2100 when the country formerly known as the United States of America is now called Paramita and Paramita was founded by Gaia and her par- her, her her science partner Rani so two matriarchs somehow managed to overthrow the US government and raise this new nation,
0: which is a matriarchy. I just got chills from hearing that story. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, well, I hope, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, looking for a new agent mm-hmm. and,
1: um, because my old agents only, they only represent nonfiction work. And so that's the kind of reaction I need from readers. <laughs> I hope so. Um, yeah, it's like it came out in a rush in five months, you know, um, and I really love it. It's, uh, and everyone who has read it, um, people enjoy it. And some people get really like, they're like, this is a really dangerous book. I don't know if you can sell this book because it's so much like what we're going through. And then I'm like, well, that's exactly why we need to examine what's going on in the Trump administration that allowed for a pandemic to happen. Yeah. Dangerous work is exactly the work that we need to be reading and writing. No social change or no leap in literature or art has ever come from doing something safely. In order to shake up the world, we have to take dangerous risks.
0: Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It was so great talking to you and you sharing so much about yourself. unbelievable that I get to have this opportunity.
1: It's so much fun and such an honor and pleasure for me.
0: As always, check out our website at neonarrators.org for information on being a guest for this podcast. You can also contact us through our email neonarrators at gmail.com or follow us on our Instagram. Thank you so much for listening and I can't wait to see you in the next episode.